Shall we go? It's time. <laughs> All right. Welcome to episode 81 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, who's got a happy trigger finger today, and joining me is Shane, and we are amateur astronomers who love looking at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is for anyone else who likes to go out under the stars and look up for themselves. Sorry about that, Shane. I slipped on the keyboard. <laughs> that is quite all right. We're, we're in a good place now. We're in a good place, and that place is reading listener emails and uh, I was sensing a, a bit of guilt from you I think you were sensing a bit of guilt from me that we weren't going to get through all the great observations that people had submitted to us and so you suggested after the last podcast that we just uh, continue on with reading those and I was excited to do that so here we are we're going to do that in a moment but uh, do you have any any other personal observations or amateur equipment in the mail to you uh, well, I have that Tasco 10 TE telescope mount, and, you know, kind of the whole package uh, that was supposed to arrive last week. But um, I think either something kind of messed up with the shipping because it went past our province to Alberta from Montreal, um, or there's just a, a big delay in shipping because of all of the, you know, holiday season parcel traffic. Uh, mm -hmm. But that should be here on Tuesday, so I'm looking forward to that. And cool. um, I also ordered a little quality of life improvement um, for my Takahashi 76 millimeter. Um, you know, the the big knock or the big complaint that a lot of TAC buyers have is that, you know, the focuser is, is not very good. Um, it's a single speed rack and pinion focuser, and it's about as vanilla as focusers get. And... Um, I actually don't mind it, but having a, a dual speed focuser is a, is a real nice thing for achieving perfect focus as you know, you know, Chris and anybody that has used one can relate. Um, so Takahashi sells a, um, it's a modification. Uh, so you keep the stock focuser on there. The part number or the thing is called M as in mother, E as in Edward, F as in Frank. So MEF dash three. And it's a little mod that you, you take one of the original focuser knobs off, you put this thing on, and then you have a dual speed focuser. Um, and it's, a, I think, a seven to one ratio. Um, so anyway, that's in the mail. And that should also arrive, I think, maybe on the same day or the day after that this Tasco is supposed to arrive. So, okay. yeah, I've got a couple things in the works. And oh. I'm on vacation all next week as well. So oh, the yeah, timing is right. kind of nice. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, I've been on vacation more or less for the past two or almost three weeks now, I guess, since the, well, I think I even took the 16th off. So I've been off for a little while, although I had to work on some days just to, uh, just to keep things running in our study. <laughs> so mm. I work on a, I work on a science study that's not astronomy related, um, and of course, uh, it's a pretty small team. I work with like six other people. So uh, sometimes I have to uh, jump in and take care of stuff like I did yesterday when I worked half the day. So that's okay, though. That's par for the course. So hopefully I'll, I might take some other days off in, uh, in January. But I've been looking at a pair of older image stabilized binoculars and and I, I wanted to chat to you briefly about that before we get going with these listener emails. And have you ever tried, you have the Canon image stabilized 12 by 36 
Mark II or version two, right? You got these, I think you said six years ago or something like that. Yep, that's correct. Yep. And do you ever, did you ever try the first version? No, uh, I didn't. Um, no one I knew had them. And the, uh, the local store where I bought my 12 by 36 is, uh, they just had the Gen 2s there. Yeah. So when I was, I used to be a member of the, of the Halifax RASC, um, which is the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada's branch in, in, uh, in Halifax. And, uh, and for when the image stabilized binoculars came out, every, it seemed like half the people not half the people, but probably a dozen people bought them and they bought pretty much every version of them. I think there's somebody bought the 10 by thirties and a few, two or three people bought the uh, 15 by 45s. They were, and I think one person bought the 12 by 36s, which I quite liked because they like yours, they're smaller uh, or not much smaller, but they're, they're lighter than, than the 45 or 50 millimeter, um, image stabilized binoculars um they're not much smaller but they're much lighter and uh and they have a pretty pretty wide field field of view and those original ones had uh, just over a 5.6 degree field of view um but uh anyway the the image stabilized button was a little bit more difficult uh to reach but i did really like them so i was very excited when you bought the, the second version. And I thought those were fantastic because they were even lighter. Your 12 by 36 Canon image stabilized binoculars are lighter than my ultralight seven by 50 binoculars by like an ounce or something like that. But they're, they're just a smidge lighter than that's just hard to believe. Yeah. Yeah. They really are extremely comfortable to use. I love them. I, I really wouldn't trade anything else uh, for them, you know, and, and when it comes to eyepieces and telescopes, I've gone through, more than I, you know, care to admit probably. <laughs> but when it comes to binoculars, it's one pair. That's all I, that's all I've ever had the desire to own. Um, and I just, I don't, I don't believe I, well, you know, maybe the, what are the, I can't remember what the, the 42 millimeter objective magnification Oh, the 10 is. by 42s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those yeah. intrigue me, but at nearly 2000 Canadian dollars, um, not interested. So, so I did try those. I, I should remember somebody, um, I was at a star party and they had them and they let me take them for a spin. And I did really like them. They're just a, they're just a little lighter than the 15 by fifties, like the Mm -hmm. mic has. And, and the 15 by fifties are getting fairly heavy. I think they're 43 or 44 ounces. Anyway, they're in the low to mid forties as far as ounces go. And I really like my ultralight seven by fifties because I think they're like 24 or 25 ounces or something. And I really find like that is a nice weight. You can hold it for a long time. I have uh, another pair of seven by 35s that aren't ultralight. They're a little bit more rugged made by uh, Nikon, the Nikon Action Extreme. And I really like those because they have a super wide field of view. It says 9.3. I think it's really like 9.1 or 9.2, but uh, they weigh about 29 ounces. But I find like I can hand hold a binocular up into the low 30s. And so a pair of the, the first version of the 12 by 30, 36s um, has, has come up uh, used at a reputable uh, dealer, but they can't get photos because they're working remotely. <laughs> oh, geez. So I'm a little bit apprehensive, but the price, I think I sent you the price or I sent you the, the, uh, the ad for them or not ad, I guess, just like the online link. And all, all it has is just 
the name of the binocular and the price and the price is, is pretty good. So I wasn't sure they wrote me back. Um, they said that, uh, cause I'd asked if there was any corrosion in the battery. They said, no. And they said the glass is spotless. The stabilization works. Uh, they said the rubber is intact. Um, it includes a strap, but doesn't include, um, the case or, and they can't do any, any photographs of it. So I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit apprehensive. So I'm not really sure whether I'll, I'll spring for those or, or wait, but I have been kind of saving up for the, for the uh, 12 by 36 uh, version three, um, mm -hmm. which is just simply what they, they've changed something, I think in, in the, in the 10 by 30 and the 12 by 36 to just bring them up to, to the next standard. In fact, I think all that the two uh, 10 by 30 and 12 by 36, three, uh, did was I think that they've migrated over to the variable prism or something like that from from another a slightly different prism than they were using because I think they use the same prism that they're using in the uh, in one of the newer newer versions of one of the other binoculars that that they've now released with this technology so I think it's just simply a uh, a matter of scale it's probably easier to use these, these different prisms, but I don't know that there's an appreciable difference. Uh, and you don't get the added features that those other prisms are able, able to do. You just get the, the regular features like on yours. So anyhow, so I'm, I'm debating that I might, I don't know, maybe I should put in like a super low offer and see if they'll sell them to me for who knows how much, but, uh, mm -hmm. that, that's kind what, of what, what I've been thinking. One thing that intrigues me about the gen threes is that, um, the button to turn on the stabilization, you just press it. It's like the 15 by 50s, and then it's turned on. Whereas I think the Gen 1 and the Gen 2, you have to hold the button down to engage the stabilization. So um, it is, but the Gen 1s have, have an interesting trick. And that's, and, and I did ask if it included this. They didn't, they didn't say it's included, so I'm guessing it's not. I did ask specifically, and they said that only the strap is included. They didn't say anything else. But you could get, it almost looked like like a guitar pick or something, like half a guitar pick. And you could actually slot it in and it would hold the button down for you. Oh, really? It was like a manual thing. And I thought if I got those, I wonder if I could, um, I wonder if somebody had one somewhere and I could, I could get, get it and, and copy it or get them to, to do a scan of it and then 3D print one because it just like, it was like a clip. It just clipped in and, mm. and it would hold the, it would hold the binoculars uh, on because I think with yours, like with the, uh, the other modern ones, it's kind of like, there's like a circle and then the button is like the high point in the circle. But with these ones, the button was almost like recessed in this little groove. And yeah, and, it, and this, it's on one side of the binocular, I think yeah. rather than in the middle. Right. And yeah. so you could get this thing that would clip into that groove and you would just, you would just slide it in. Now, I mean, it would, it would keep them on. It was a little bit futzy, but, and it was manual. It wasn't, you know, a, a electronic, but I thought, you know, that, that could, that could be an option. Um, the other thing I thought, well, if I bought these used, I could just put like a different, I would just like maybe glue something on there because, you know, I haven't paid half the price of a new pair. There's still, you know, there's still be a few hundred bucks or something like that, but I would be a little bit more inclined maybe to modify them or, or mess around with them. And the other thing is, is that the, the original versions, and now these are like 20 years old, I think, cause I, I think they stopped making them in 2006 or something. 
So even if they were the, the very last pair, they're 14 years old. Um, but, but they've been making them since I think 97 or 98 or maybe even earlier than that. So they made them for about 10 years um, before, before they brought out your version. Um, but they have uh, 43 millimeter threaded um, uh, filter threads on the objective oh. lenses. Oh, that's nice. And I thought that could be uh, that could be interesting for uh, for trying to put some uh, for trying to put some uh, nebula filters on there, maybe or something like that. Though I don't know how well they'd work at a three millimeter exit pupil, but I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, we'll see. Um, I really had hoped they would send some photos. Kind of like really wish they would do that, but they wouldn't. That makes me a little bit. But I don't know. It's a, it's a very reputable dealer that I bought from before. So if I was going to, if I really was going to roll the dice, you know, um, maybe that would be the time to do it. what do you think of that price? Uh, yeah, yeah. Not too bad. I, I, I think, uh, I, I don't think you'd beat that price anywhere. So. Yeah. All right. Well, without further ado, shall we talk about more listener observations? Yeah, let's do it. So this is kind of a part two to the uh, draw for the RASC 2021 Observer's Handbook. We asked listeners to submit uh, observations to be entered to win that book. Um, and we already so we, did the draw and we've, it's it's now in the mail, theoretically speaking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the time this airs, it should be in the mail. Yeah, okay. Um, but anyway, we we had a different plan for this episode and then we said, let's put that on hold and just continue reading the observations uh, because they're really good. And I think, uh, I think I'd like to get through all of them if we could. Yeah. All right. Let's, let's go. I've kind of lost track of where we are. I was skipping around and reading them. So. Yeah, no worries. No worries. So uh, the next one here on the list is uh, from Mark. Um, and Mark has a refractor, a 70 millimeter refractor. That's F10. Uh, so this is kind of similar to what you and I observe with in terms of aperture and uh, uh, somewhat uh, with the focal length. Um, yeah. So I think he wrote us a couple times, didn't he? Over the, over I the believe, past while. I believe so. Yeah, because yeah. I remember check. that instrument. Um, go ahead. Okay. Uh, so this was submitted on December 17th, just to give uh, some timing. Uh, I went outside at 9.30 p.m. last night uh, after a wet, cloudy day. The clouds had cleared completely and left a totally clear sky. My intention was to start observing the Pleiades, then star hopping through Perseus uh, to the Alpha Persei star cluster around Murfak. Uh, from there to the double cluster in Perseus. From there to one M103 in Cassiopeia. And from there to NGC 457, the Owl Cluster. Sometimes known as the skydiver around these parts. Oh, really? Never heard I think of that. so, isn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure. Per, you, Somebody I'll, told me that once, or maybe I read it. Huh, okay. <laughs> Learn something new every day. Yeah. Two um, things if you're me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> I observed uh, the Pleiades many times and the double cluster on a number of occasions, mm. but the other objects are new to me. As Perseus was pretty much directly overhead, I set up my scope on the driveway in between my house and my neighbor's house. Uh, while this does restrict my field of view substantially, it also means that the streetlights on my road are completely hidden from view, so light pollution is much less of a problem than it is normally. Um, and I think that that's awesome. Uh, like even in the city, if you can eliminate some of that, you know, neighbor's backyard light or street lights, it does help your viewing. So, um, you know, this tactic is, is a good one. 
Um, carrying on here. Uh, provided what I want to observe is in a fairly narrow band of sky, it's an excellent position for observing and one I use whenever I can. Everything fits into that band of sky at some point during the year. Uh, things started out well. I centered my telescope, a Bresser Skylux 70 millimeter by 700 millimeter focal length on an Alt-As mount with an Altair lightwave dielectric mirror diagonal on the Pleiades and spent quite some time observing them with a Revelation Astro 32mm Plossel. Uh, the seeing was excellent. The 32mm Plossel remained in my diagonal for the entire session. It provided me with excellent uh, view of everything I observed. I then star hopped uh, upwards into Perseus with my aim being to get to the Alpha Persei star cluster. Unfortunately, I only got as far as Epsilon Persei when I reached the limit of my mount. Otherwise known uh, as Dobson's Hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If for anybody that, whether you're using a Dobsonian or a reflector, um, uh, and it's like a, a manual mount of some kind, really, uh, anything at zenith or directly overhead is just, uh, I don't even bother. It's such, a, it's such a pain, almost impossible. Yeah. Um, so anyway, with, uh, with Mark's mount, uh, so when he hit Epsilon Persei is when I reached the limit of my mount, my scope was pointed almost directly upwards and would go no further. It's the first time I've had that issue. Uh, so I needed to change my position. I moved out to the front of the house and set up the scope on the driveway. Uh, in this position, I can see a lot more of the sky, but two streetlights mean that light pollution is more of an issue. To make things easier for myself, I decided to change my plan and come at things from the other direction. Deneb was low in the western sky and very easy to locate in the finder scope. So I decided to start at Deneb and work uh, upwards towards Cassiopeia. Uh, this is the first time I've worked in this direction from Deneb. I noticed that the Garnet Star in Cepheus uh, was not too far away, as I've never observed this or anything in Cepheus, uh, or I guess Cephas. Uh, yeah, tomato, I, tomato. I've heard it said both <laughs> ways. I wouldn't, so I wouldn't worry about that. We're amateurs, okay. by the way, so we can say yeah, anything we want. Yeah. There you go. Um, <laughs> So before I star hopped over to it and was pleased to see that it did indeed appear, appear very red. Mm. Do you know, Chris, is that a, is that a carbon star by chance? Um, so I don't think it is a carbon star, but have you ever observed it? I'm just trying to think. I, I, I think I have, but you know, I, I probably wouldn't have logged it as a, like a, a separate observation, but yeah. So this and and people might might hear me googling it now, but I I have made many observations of this star because it's quite interesting. Um, it's known as the common name uh, is Herschel's Garnet Star due to William Herschel's uh, observation of it, otherwise known as Mu Cephei. Um, but the reason why I would be observing it is not necessarily for the star, but uh, but but just outside of that star and sort of in in a bit of a halo there. Uh, is IC 1396, which is a large, uh, very faint nebula. So, and it's very, very large. Um, I can barely get it into the uh, 18 power field of my five inch uh, refractor, which, which gives me about a three and a half or more uh, field of view. Um, so let's see, it's got a red color noted by William Herschel. Um, let's see, let's see. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it is a red star. 
So I think it's just a red giant. It's nearing okay. its death and it's fusing uh, helium into carbon. Um, so that's what's going on there. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks for looking that up. Yeah, no problem. Okay. So that's carrying a, on. That's a, that's a good um, star to observe though for people because uh, it, is, it is kind of approaching end of its life and could supernova. And uh, I think it's a pretty star. It's a star that has a lot of color. And if you're at a dark sky location, you can try for IC1396. And if you're an astrophotographer, that's where the elephant trunk nebula is, but that is super hard to see visually. Hmm, cool. And you need a nebula filter to see that, um, that nebula well. I can just barely see a change in the background because it's right in the, in the middle of the Milky Way. Eh? Like between, oh, okay. if you draw a line between Deneb and uh, Cephas, uh, it, that, that's where it is. Okay. All right. Uh, so then I star hop my way through Cassiopeia, moving from Calf to uh, Shadar to Gamma Cassiopeiae to Rockbaugh. Uh, from there, M103 was easy to locate and it appeared clearly in the eyepiece. Uh, after some time viewing M103, it was an easy star hop over to NGC 457, uh, the owl cluster or the skydiver as we just learned. <laughs> and yeah. I was pleased and surprised to find that it did indeed look uh, something like an owl uh, with two bright eyes and the suggestion of outstretched wings. I spent some time observing this cluster and was quite charmed uh, with how pleasing it looked. And, uh, you know, what I like about that observation, Chris, is, you know, some of these objects have names, uh, the owl cluster, the swan nebula, um, and those two actually look like their names, which I can't, you know, I can't make the same claim for some other objects. Sometimes I struggle to see, you know, the object in the name. Uh, so the owl cluster definitely appears like an owl to me as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I was just thinking you're, you're, um, you're the, like the pronunciations are pretty amazing. Um, and when, uh, I was teaching my class once, I just have to add this anecdote, uh, for anybody that, that, that may be used to hearing some of these names pronounced one way or another. So many of the star names are, uh, Arabic in origin. Um, just, and we're not going to get into the whole history of that. We did that, uh, during one of our early episodes. Um, but I, I was teaching my class and I'm standing up and it was a very small class. There was maybe uh, eight or 10 people in it. And, uh, and this gentleman was there. And, and every once in a while, when I would say one of these names, he would kind of get this funny look on his face. So, so sort of at the break, I do a break like halfway through my class. We we're just kind of chatting casually. And uh, he, he actually came up and he, and he spoke to me. He said, uh, he said, <laughs> he said something. And I said, yeah, I could tell you were, you were having a bit of a reaction to the way I was pronouncing the names. And, and he was like totally fluent uh, speaker of Arabic. And, and he was telling, he started telling me like how to, and I said, correct me like correct, like in the class when I'm doing this, I, I we want to hear this. And, and he would say the names. There's no way I could ever say the names properly. I don't <laughs> think like it was, it was amazing. And what was really cool though is, um, and he, he had a really, I, f I forget his exact education, but I believe he's, he's a surgeon here in town. Um, but anyway, uh, he had a really interesting educational background and knew some of like the, the history on, on these names and that sort of thing. And so he gave us a bit of that in the class. Um, it was just phenomenal. And 
I, I have his email somewhere. I keep meaning I should reach out to him because it would be amazing to get him to, to actually come on and actually tell us how to say some of these names properly. It was, it was mm-hmm. really, really cool. And that he, he actually knew some of the history. So like, well, this is what the name means. And like kind of would give like a minute on each one. And then I just like, keep going with my class. Like it was just so phenomenal to do that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a neat experience. Yeah. But yeah, there's no way, like, I don't, like it would take some work to be able to, I think to get them, to get them right. For mm-hmm, sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks. <laughs> All right. More, more of Mark's log here. So uh, moved on to the double cluster. Um, I've observed the double cluster on a number of occasions, uh, but it never fails to delight. I spent a good 10 minutes observing the double cluster before deciding to move on to the Alpha Persei star cluster. And in that moment, a cloud bank moved in and very quickly covered the entire sky. Um, I think my we can all relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is very relatable. <laughs> yep. uh, in all, I had just over an hour's observing time. My telescope was wet with dew by the end of the session, and my knees were sodden from having knelt on my wet driveway for so long. Uh, one of the problems with observing objects near the zenith using a refractor. But it had been a very good night's observing session. Uh, Alpha, Alpha Persei can wait for another night. So Yeah. I thought, I thought that was really interesting. You know, one of the things that, that I do find interesting, um, especially um, with folks over uh, on the other side of the water is um, like, I don't think there's a good 70 millimeter with a nice little Altaz mount, um, like in a nice long focal length like that, that you can get here for a reasonable price. Cause I I've, I've looked around, but I did see like in the UK and other places um, Bresser has uh has some of these scopes more widely available, but I think like in North America, it's Explore Scientific that that imports them, and they they import a pretty good selection. But I mean, they bring them in and they just sell. They bring in like I don't know how many, but they're always almost always sold out. They can be a little bit difficult to get your hands on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, absolutely. It's a nice it's a nice size telescope. It's a great general purpose. Uh, you know, planets, deep sky. You can do a lot of things with that one. Yeah, well, 30, uh, 70 millimeter in a long focal length like that, you know, um, the telescope is small enough that that long focal length is still going to be able to provide a nice big field of view with the 32 mil plossal. And uh, having, excuse me, having that long focal length will, will give some nice planetary views. Um, and then you're not impeded by, by seeing conditions as much, although when those clouds move in, we're all, uh, you know, dead in the water. Yep. Absolutely. All right. Uh, All right. The next one here is uh, from Jim. And uh, this one I love because as I read it, I I just, I I felt like I was like his observing buddy and driving with him to the site. It just, uh, uh, I could relate an awful lot to this one too. So is he using the same telescope I have or is it the F9? It's the F9, isn't it? Yeah. 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 Yeah, It's the F9. Yeah. Yeah, he's got the Takahashi FC100D, which is the, the oh, no, F- no. 700 is... focal length. Oh, is it? For some reason, yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was the uh, uh, the next the the one with the longer focal length. Um, kind of, but any anyway, it's 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 either the same telescope I have or or one that has 150 millimeter more focal length. So it's it's almost identical. Yeah. So this is from December 21st. Um, So the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. 
so it starts off uh, found, well, actually, I think uh, he, he had submitted um, an observation or two from the previous couple of days, uh, but I just chopped out this one from December 21st um, to read out here. So mm. um, found my night watch books, uh, had been lost since moving last August. Uh, the Jumbo Pocket Sky Atlas, uh, Sky and Telescope Messier card, Orion Deep Map 600, and more astronomy books. Uh, in the process of moving uh, astro cards from Pocket Sky Atlas to Jumbo Pocket Sky Atlas, uh, also worked on labels uh, for Big uh, Bright Star Atlas 2000 book and a chart for a couple of these books. Um, you know, I really... Plus- I- I really got to say that I like his selection of books um, yeah. and, and atlases here. So um, like these ones, I, I can all kind of recommend, which is Nightwatch by Terrence Dickinson, the Jumbo Sky Atlas, which you can get through Sky and Telescope, which is um, a large version of the, I think Roger Sinat uh, is, is the person who put it together, but I think it's based on the Will Tiran uh, Sky Atlas 2000 charts uh, and that's available from Sky and Telescope, the Sky and Telescope Messier card. I like wore my Sky and Telescope Messier card out. I think that is that is a great thing for people to have um, for many years um, when they're when they're observing because it shows where all the Messier objects are basically, and really it's all you need to be able to find them. I think. And then the Orion Deep Map six hundred. I had a copy of that. I kind of wore it out, um, but I I kind of thought it would be cool because it's almost like a roadmap, like an like sort of an older roadmap that you kind of unfold. I thought it would just oh, okay. be really funny to kind of unfold it and put it on the hood of my car, like when I was <laughs> observing, but uh, like kind of like I'm looking, you know, like how somebody might be like stopped on the side of the road. And I always kind of fantasize that somebody would stop to kind of offer assistance. And then I'd say, yeah, I'm trying to get to like M81, right? And like looking at this and looking <laughs> at me and like, what is going on here? Is this person from space? Um, but uh but yeah, that, that one is a little bit more difficult to use in practicality. But I've been thinking about getting a copy of that more recently because I think it would just look good on my wall in here. <laughs> Any more astronomy stuff on my wall. Can, can never have enough of that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. They were, uh, they were driving up to Sugarland. That sounds yes. pretty nice. <laughs> it, does, it does sound like, yeah, like <laughs> fantasy land, right? Yeah. Um, so cloud forecast for Sugarland was dubious. Uh, Katie, I think, or Caddy, uh, was better. So I decided to head up north to see if I could get a more clear view. Uh, As I raced up the beltway at about 5.15 p.m., uh, it was 73 degrees Fahrenheit. The sun was peeking through the clouds, but a big bank of clouds from west-northwest had me concerned. Uh, Due to that cloud bank, I passed Caddy and kept going north uh, at about 80 miles per hour uh, on the multi-lane beltway. Uh, Still the sun disappeared hope, for the, hope the state 20... troopers aren't tuning in <laughs> yeah. uh, the sun disappeared for the last 20 minutes before sunset at 5 30 p.m uh, i was north of 290 now on two lane roads heading west when i came to an intersection and noticed clearing skies north and south of me but still the big cloud bank almost in front of me west northwest uh, north kind of looked a little bit clearer but I decided to head back south in an attempt and perhaps uh, get around the cloud mass and also closer uh, to back home. Uh, After crossing back 290 and driving through Hockley onto single lane Warren Ranch Road and then about five minutes south, I started seeing other observers on the side of the road at a nature area uh, observation tower. Uh, Clouds started to clear, especially at 25 degrees altitude. 
since I don't like to observe through power lines on the west side of the road, I continued on until the power lines crossed to the east side of the road. Uh, I then stopped to set up in the vacant driveway of a farmer's field. As soon as I got out of the car, I realized I had forgotten a jacket. And since it was starting to cool off, I put on the only warm clothing I had in the car, uh, which was a baseball hat. <laughs> uh, and, you know, Chris, one time when we went down to Grasslands, I had forgotten to take any insulated pants or ski pants. And mm. wow, you know, my observing sessions were not very long on that trip. Yeah. And I'll never forget the time I went down in the fall of the year with Mike and it was 40 degrees above zero and it was going to minus four degrees Celsius that night. Cause it was going to be perfectly clear. And basically the atmosphere was going to leave us. And, uh, and Mike locked his keys in the, in the car after he got everything set up and he had like <laughs> stripped down cause it was so hot. And then fortunately one of the park, uh, uh, Rangers showed up and gave him like the park parka and ski pants and hat and gloves and everything. But <laughs> wow, yeah, it's happened to us all, probably. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Jim goes on to say that you know, 20% of heat loss is through the head, so you know, baseball hat probably was helping. Yeah, there you uh, go. Clouds started to clear away, especially up high after the sunset. Turns out that apparently Sugarland was also clear, at least high up. Still, uh, here I had a wide open horizon, unlike my Sugarland neighborhood. By the time I set up on the tripod and aligned my finder around 5.45 p.m., I noticed Jupiter pop out and later Saturn very close at 2.30 p.m. on a clock face. I used different magnifications on the TAC FC100D, uh, 700 millimeter focal length, uh, 100 millimeter diameter refractor uh, from 40 millimeters down to five and a half millimeters. Uh, much preferred the view with 20 millimeter Explore Scientific, uh, 35 power, 2.9 degree field of view, and uh, the 20 millimeter Explore Scientific bar load. Uh, so 70 power uh, with one and a half degree field of view, uh, the best. Uh, other eyepieces used were the 13 millimeter Ethos, uh, five and a half millimeter Explore Scientific 100, and 40 millimeter. At about 6.30 p.m., the seeing deteriorated, so I put the Barlow away and just used the 20 millimeter. I also moved the scope closer to the car so I could lean against the car to steady my view and be more comfortable. Uh, Jupiter and its four moons, plus a strategically placed star looking like a fifth moon, and Saturn with two plus moons were in a V shape uh, looking like the V in Taurus, except Jupiter replacing uh, Aldebaran. Super wow. Also viewed in 15 by 50 Canon IS binoculars where I saw Jupiter and moons, but Saturn just elongated, no separate rings. In the TAC 100, uh, multiple, so he says three plus uh, Jupiter bands came and went uh, based on seeing. Uh, sometimes Jupiter's edges were boiling. Watched one of Jupiter's moons merge into the planet. Uh, not sure if it was behind or front. Uh, Jupiter's moons were extremely tiny little balls. The Cassini division on Saturn popped in and out of view as seeing momentarily improved. Uh, tonight's view of the conjunction. Um, oh, geez. What did I just do here? Uh, I lost my spot. I got it. It says tonight's view of the conjunction was slightly better than any views uh, I had had over the last two weeks. Jupiter and Saturn were easily split naked eye. Uh, by some of the novices who must have been there as well. And by 6.45, 
He heard something. This is this is why I was like waiting for you to get to this. By 645, I heard something walking around in the dark near me. Probably a deer, but my imagination was getting the better of me. I thought it could have been a dog or a bobcat um, because they do have, have those around there, uh, apparently. Um, it was certainly not an armadillo. <laughs> Lots of them around here, but they make... Uh, they make a lot more noise, I guess. So, um, but I, I can relate to that. Remember the time we were observing over past um, Moose Jaw and we, uh, mm-hmm. we, we had those coyotes around us. That really, that was one of the most nerve wracking experiences I, I had had because there was two of us typically, like if there's one person, the coyotes won't get, uh, the coyotes might come in close, but usually with two people like around talking and, and working two telescopes, just the noise of that. But they were, I don't know whether they were young or what, but they were, remember they were really getting close to us and we end up packing it in after a couple hours. It was just, and they were like howling and stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I, animals can, can prevent or uh, uh, present a hazard to your observer. Yeah. I, I, yeah, that was, that was just a bit, that was a bit much, much for my taste, but uh Anyway, he tried looking around with his phone, but he, he didn't see anything and, and then just decided to uh, to pack it up and head home, had a long drive home anyway. And keep in mind, he's also underdressed for the occasion, so he's probably going to get cold too. So um, says he uh, took a few more looks uh, and then uh, sort of sort of broke it down and, and headed home, got home about uh, eight o'clock. So what is next, Shane? Next one here is from another Chris. Uh, we had a few Chris's Chris. submit uh, observations. Right. Yeah. Um, so he said two objects that I would like to note. Uh, number one, Andromeda galaxy. I have always wanted to see it. I am new to amateur astronomy and have a four and a half inch uh, refractor Dobsonian. I was so excited to finally find it this summer when it finally came over the horizon. Uh, and then the next one that he noted here is Elberio, my first double star. How beautiful the blue star. Uh, I saw one gold star and the other blue. And um, Elberio is, is really incredible, uh, just with the, the color contrast. It's, it's one that I go back to many, many times. And that, that's my notes. That's not Chris's notes. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, why don't you take the next one, Chris, uh, from Lena? So let's see if I can find having a little bit of trouble with that. Uh, Lena? Yeah, it's just the next one. I think I am not. Row, row eight. Row eight. Let's find row number eight here. Oh, there's seven. There's nine. <laughs> we're, we're closing in on it here. All right. Let's go. Oh, oh, why did it do that? All right. I've got it now. I've got it now. Thanks for holding with me. All right. So uh, this person, what are they observing with? What's their telescope? Unknown. But after listening to a recent episode of this podcast, where we were talking about the uh, Grimaldi crater on the moon, they went out to try to take a look and take a sketch of it. They said they're a beginner when it comes to astronomy and sketching, but I really love observing the moon. So I was really happy about this amazing tip to observe Grimaldi. And if I'm recalling correctly, because we're reading from just text there was a beautiful sketch accompanying this observation as well wasn't there yeah yeah lena did a really good job on the sketch as well Um, me being somebody who does not sketch and is thinking of getting into sketching i'm really impressed and uh, motivated actually by uh lena and uh neil's sketches uh, that were that we saw um you know i'm i if i can be half as good as either one of those one day i'll be pretty happy yeah (laughs) 
Exactly. Sketching, like I'm always so blown away by sketches of the moon just because it's, I mean, you really have to have, in my opinion, some sort of artistic ability to do it well, like, like uh, Lena and, and Phil have done, um, mm-hmm. and, you know, it just, just really, really beautiful to, to see those. So want me to read Henry's observation as well? Yeah, go for it. All right. So he says, I want to see the Great Conjunction tonight. So he's observing on the 22nd of December. Uh, But unfortunately, it is raining hard right now and not supposed to stop until tomorrow. Well, we had a snowstorm that night and I saw it for literally 50 seconds. Like literally through a break in in the in the overhead cloud. Uh, Following your suggestion from the 1217 podcast, he had gone out the previous Thursday uh, when they had a break in the weather and he was able to get some good looks and he attached a wonderful photo, um, which is really cool to see, um, but said it looked much better through the eyepiece. But yeah, I mean, with the seeing conditions and, and with a photo taken in more of those photons uh, can kind of blur it up a bit, but still very cool to get that, like, you know, considering that you were able to get both both planets in the same field at the same time. And it's really great when we uh, read something like that. Um, makes it feel worthwhile that the information that we're putting out uh, is helping people to actually see some of this stuff that they want to take a look at. So very neat. Yeah, for sure. Um, Chris, do you want to read, uh, oh, gee, you know, whenever I, uh, no, I, I'm going to dig. So Justin submitted a PDF and I need to dig that up. Okay. I'm going to read the next one. um, Go down Uh, to Mark's uh, because we did man meets and we did meals. All right. Sounds good. So Mark wrote right now, and this was from the 30th of December, I think right now um, I am looking to see some local DSOs or deep sky objects and the large planets, Jupiter and Saturn. I plan to keep an observing log and was able to split the conjunction on December 21st with my naked eye. uh, And so did I, it was a little bit close, but it didn't like combine the light. And this is my own, my own personal observation here. Uh, uh, Mark, but uh, yeah, it, it didn't like combine the light. Like I think uh, the media was almost portraying that it might. Uh, he said that he had to switch or he switched to eight by 42 binoculars. I wonder what those are. I really want to get a pair of eight by 42s. I feel like that would be a good, a good size. Um, and uh, made them, he had to sort of change the angle to make them comfortable uh, to do some observing. Uh, and he had bought two pairs for his wife when they went to Alaska and then he just ordered a set of the Nikons. So that's pretty exciting. So congratulations on the new binoculars. All right. Do you have, uh, the other set of observations up? Yeah, I do. Uh, so Justin sent us uh, a log and, uh, so it starts off with, I have attached a PDF of my logbook entry from the Jupiter Saturn great conjunction of 2020. I observed it with my 25 by 70 Celestron binoculars from the second story of my apartment complex. It was super cool to see. Uh, He goes on in the email to say that he also received an Orion ST80. Uh, So something close to to you, Chris. Uh, Yeah, I remember reading this. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah. He he got it for free or somebody gave it to him or something. Yeah, it was for free. He said it's not in the best shape, but he's going to put in some work to get it going. And, uh, you know, that's a well, as you've said many times, it's a super capable telescope. So I, I think everybody should awesome. own one. It, it's not yeah. like it, it's it's not the best telescope, but it's one of the most useful telescopes. It's sort of hard to describe. But when you get one, you kind of use it a bit and you realize why many people end up owning one um, just to have as a, you know, such a great sort of beater telescope to take out when the conditions are, are marginal and uh, also gives you like the widest field possible. Um 
in a, in a small telescope that's uh, that's easy to use. Keep going. Yeah. So I'll, I'll describe the PDF because I, I love this. It's a, it's a template that he just wrote in. But so some of the fields here in this template is object, uh, constellation, instrument, aperture, focal length, eyepiece magnification, filters, uh, observer, date, time, location, seeing, transparency, lunar phase, and conditions, which are all pretty cool things to record for an observing log. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has two circles, uh, where you would sketch, you know, whatever object you're looking at. So here he sketched Saturn, uh, you know, with some rings, Jupiter with the positioning of the moons and everything is labeled. And then there's a, a field below just for your, your, you know, writing of notes. So he wrote, uh, Jupiter and Saturn within, uh, 10 arc minutes of each other, um, I can't quite read that previous. uh, Yeah. Sometimes PDFs can be kind of a bit funny. Yeah. uh, Last time they were this close was 800 years ago. Uh, Once in a lifetime view could see, and then in brackets, barely five of Jupiter's moons. So I think that probably one of those was a a star that one of the other listeners referenced. I think Jim referenced that. Yeah, because the um, fifth one would be Amalthea, which was discovered by Barnard using a 36-inch refractor. So it's it's kind of faint. Yeah, yeah. Uh, none of Saturn... Uh, none of Saturn's? Oh, so yeah, could see five of Jap- Jupiter's moons. None of Saturn's. Uh, could barely see Saturn's rings. Uh, ideal would be a larger telescope with interchangeable eyepieces. But mm. uh, I thought this cool. was awesome. I, I love the yep. template and I think that's a great way to, to log some observations. Yeah. It'd be cool to, uh, to see maybe some photos if he's doing those uh, upgrades to the ST80, the short tube 80 millimeter F5. Um, I always get really excited to, to read people's experiences of upgrading those because um, small changes make big differences with those scopes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Uh, What's what next? What, uh, why don't you do Douglas? Yeah. So when I saw this at first, like Douglas last name and, uh, and first name combined, that's <laughs> same as another observer who was, uh, who lived around the corner from me growing up. And I had to look and I'm like, Oh, his address is not the same. <laughs> so I know where that guy lives now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and it wasn't the same person, but I thought, wow, that would have been amazing if it was the, the guy from around the corner from me, uh, where I grew up who had, uh, hit a mead eight inch and he would set it up. Um, his parents had owned a hotel and he would sometimes go and stay and like work at the hotel. And then at night when not much was going on, but he still kind of had to be around for guests. He would just like set up his telescope in the parking lot out front. I was like driving by one day and I'm like, that guy has a big eight inch Schmidt grain set up. I got to go look through this thing. So I like pulled over and pulled in and went and looked and had a, had a chat with him. Um, but anyway, uh, Doug writes, a um, few observations for us. On the 17th, my new two-inch eyepieces arrived. I immediately put them in the telescope. I was amazed at the eye relief and could easily see the planets in the same field of view. Did he say what the eyepieces were? You could see Saturn's uh, or three of Jupiter's moons plus uh, Titan uh, and a background star. So I think that was the one that, uh, that we referred to before. I wonder what those eyepieces were. That's Just uh, searching for the email. Yeah, um, I'll keep going. See if, uh, yeah. Yeah, December 19th, I observed both uh, Jupiter and Saturn and later this evening uh, as the planets were significantly closer together. The color differences were apparent. You and I noticed those as well, Shane. 
Um, he could see Jupiter's cloud bands uh, better than, than he had uh, uh, earlier. And his neighbor and his neighbor's son came over and they took a look at the conjunction as well uh, as many of his uh, family members. And they also observed the moon and all the craters along the Terminator. And then on the 21st, he writes, uh, fortunate to have a clear night tonight to observe the conjunction, continue to enjoy the contrast brightness uh, between the two planets. Uh, they appeared to my naked eye as two distinct points of light in the sky. My neighbor again came over and in addition to Jupiter and Saturn, we observed Mars and the moon. So yeah, it's neat to kind of get those uh, confirmations that like everybody was able to easily split it with their eyes. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I did chop out a little bit of the email and it just says, of course, my main focus has been on the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. I live in Utah, but we've had intermittent cloud coverage. I was able to observe the conjunction three times, the 17th, 19th, and 21st, which you've just read. Uh, I have a Celestron 8SE. I chose it because several years ago at a star party through that model, I was able to clearly see individual stars in M13, uh, the Hercules mm -hmm. cluster, uh, rather, th rather than the fuzzy spot it was in my 113 millimeter telescope. Yeah. Um, so no mention though of the eyepieces. Uh, yeah. In terms mm -hmm. of which ones. But. Yeah. So you can see like the, the person's name and the instrument they're using are pretty similar. Like it was like another eight inch McCasker. And I'm like, wait, what? Because <laughs> we haven't had anybody write within with that yet. Uh, anyway, very cool. Really enjoyed that observation. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Do you want to read the last one? Is it, I think this is the last one, isn't it? Uh, no, we got two more. Uh, okay. I only see one, so we'll let you go. Okay. Um, so this one is from another Chris. Um, so it starts off M37 from November 20th. Uh, wow. This might be one of my favorite objects yet. Certainly one of my favorite open clusters. Uh, I'm seeing a single star sitting at the center uh, of the cluster that appears to be redder than the rest of the cluster. At 90 times, uh, so 10 millimeter eyepiece, uh, it appears to have a channel of clear sky surrounding the red star, kind of like a moat with a wall. A band of stars about three stars deep surrounds the solitary red star. The remainder of the stars look like diamonds and gemstones spilled and sprinkled around the wall of stars. When I looked at it uh, with high power, 128 times, it loses some of the charm that it had with my 10 millimeter. I switched to my 17 millimeter eyepiece and it really prettied up even further. Now it reminds me of a glowing fingerprint on the sky. Uh, overall, I like the 10 millimeters image uh, since it seems to strike a balance between uh, the star resolution and the clusters uh, composition in the eyepiece. Can't wait to see it under darker skies. I give it four stars. Uh, and then M38, this open cluster can be M37's little sibling. Interestingly, at 90 times, there's also a center star surrounded by a black channel, again, like a moat. Uh, M38 has an arrangement of pairs of stars at diagonally opposing positions, um, sort of like, oh, my monitor just flickered, um, sort of like 12 and 6 and 3 and 9. Uh, they almost seem like they're standing around the central star. I give it three stars. Uh, I love this visual <laughs> depiction. Uh, I love the. I rating. thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, but I I just love I love the description. Yeah, uh, very and good. The detail uh, of of what this object looked like, um, and I love the like not sometimes adding more magnification doesn't help the view. Sometimes reducing the magnification makes things appear better, which is why we're also advocates for binocular observing because sometimes yeah. that's just you know presents the object in the best way possible. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that was great. Um, and M thirty six is isn't too far from uh, 
from M M38. So yeah, I'd be yeah. interested to hear it. The other thing that's up there, um, and and observers out there might might know this as well, is a little asterism called the leaping minnow, which is just to the right of M37, if I'm recalling correctly. Um, people can can try to hunt that one up too, which is a really nice um binocular asterism or very low power small small telescope asterism too but the leaping minnow up in origa where these Good clusters are yeah all right last one here is from bob and okay. uh, he's using orion nine by 63 binoculars uh with a five degree field of view Oh um, yeah, I've always wondered about those. I hear yeah. I've heard good things. They're they're not an inexpensive binocular. They're they're supposed to be one of the best ones that uh, Orion Telescope and binoculars get in. Yeah, yeah, it's a very intriguing aperture magnification combo. Um, I, I would that, love to look through a pair. Gives you that magical seven millimeter uh, exocubital. I was I was looking at those years ago when I ended up getting my ten by seventies, which of course it's you know, more or less going to give you a, about the same. My 10 by 70 yeah. so about a five degree field. These are about a five degree field. They both have seven millimeter exit people. I might just get a smidge for one more magnification. You might notice that or you might not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, what, what I love about Bob's observation is his technique or, or process. It's very different than any uh, anybody else's used to my knowledge. Um, and I think that this is uh, genius. Um, so what he does is he puts his notes in a, well, in a Microsoft OneNote file. That doesn't really matter. That oh, yeah, I it. saw this. It's but, almost as like a book. Yeah. So but what he does, too, is he uses the SkyGuide uh, app on his phone. And um, he says, so when I'm making my binocular observations, I point the phone at that direction and zoom in on the object in my binocular field of view. The app labels it, it. The app labels it for me, and I snap it. From there, I transfer it to OneNote and add some annotations. Uh, I think it's just a, a great use of technology. And yeah, I'd never seen that before. Way. Yeah, yeah, I think it's uh, wonderful. So um, let me just. What the heck is going on here now? Oh, here we go. I'm just opening up the file. So um, uh, he's got some observations of Aldebaran. Uh, what's shown here is almost the same field of view, uh, you know, through the binoculars, sky was dark, moon had set earlier. First time I can recall seeing the Hyades, I didn't, uh, and didn't realize they were centered around Aldebaran. Pleiades uh, was in the same session, uh, located closer to Zenith, could see these naked eye. Uh, interesting too, first time I've distinctly seen all seven of the sisters. So that's a pretty good, uh, assuming that was naked eye, that's a pretty good observation. Mm -hmm. uh, getting all seven is not something that everybody can do very easily. No. Um, what else do we have here? Uh, he's pretty sure that he saw a one Tori, which I believe is a double. Mm -hmm. um, what else do we have going on here? Uh, moving east to east, northeast, Capella was clearly visible, had to dodge tree obstructions. Um, yeah, I remember reading that. That really kind of spoke to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We've all sure. done that. Yeah. Yeah. I could track my way to Capella and verify I was on the right star, hopping along the horizontal AUR stars. Uh, many nebulas in this part of the sky, but I couldn't dis uh, discern them even after staring for long periods of time uh, using the binoculars. But some of the, the nebula that he noted here are like the flaming star, uh, NGC 1893. And then there's another one that is not noted, but 
those can be pretty challenging nebulas, particularly the flaming star. Yeah, because that that is uh, it, it's a nebula that's that's in and around associated with that star, and I think that star is correct me if I'm wrong, Shane, but I think that's the one that escaped from from Orion at some point in time and was sort of flung out. Um, and it's sort of making its way out of out of our galactic plane or something like that. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah, but that that is that that whole area, uh, that star, that cluster, and then there's a grouping of stars. Um, they're all in and in and around that uh, that leaping minnow asterism mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier. The leaping minnow uh, is pretty easy to see in binoculars, even from the city. Uh, and then sort of progressively going out to the uh, to the open cluster star and nebula uh, get get more and more challenging, of course. Right, right. And then the last one he tried for was the Witchhead Nebula um, and was unable to see that. But that, again, is another fairly challenging object. Yeah, I I don't know that I've ever really seen it. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's it's threshold at at best. Um, And and again, I remember I was listening to a podcast years ago, holy, like more than 10 or 12 years ago. Yeah. And and they were talking about like showing the person had never clearly looked at the horse or at the witch head because they were talking about like showing it to trick or treaters. And I was like, yeah, that's not going <laughs> to, I've been to like the darkest sites and I kind of have it on a, I've maybe observed it kind of um, list of things, even, even from the darkest sites. I, I it, it is subtle. It, and it's a big uh, reflection nebula and it's illuminated by the star Rigel in the bottom uh, Orion's left foot or the uh, westernmost foot of Orion um, and it's just off there by by like two or three degrees or something and it's it's fairly large it's like two or three degrees by uh, a degree and a half or something um, but yeah I've I've had it all mapped out and yeah kind of maybe sort of seen it like I guess like to check it off to say that I saw it yeah I guess I saw it but that's a tough one yeah yeah for sure um, and that's it, Chris. We made it through all of them. Woo! Yay! Yeah, that was really cool. That was really neat to to kind of get uh, all these uh, all these observations uh, and such written into us. So yeah, look forward to uh, hearing more from people because it's great. It seems like people are pretty happy just to send in their observations, just as they hear ours, and uh, and then we do uh, do enjoy reading them and and enjoy uh, you know telling other people about them as well. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed it. Cool. All right. Anything else to add, Shane? No, that's it. Thanks, Chris. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to ask us questions or leave feedback, you can find us on Twitter. We are at Actual Astronomy, or you can email us. We are actualastronomy at gmail.com. And if you would like to support the podcast with a donation, uh, we are selling merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash actual astronomy. We wish you all clear and dark skies.